Would you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 tonight? Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I want to direct your attention when you get to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 to the middle part of the chapter. And we will take as our text this evening just four verses in the middle part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse number 15. And we'll read down to verse number 18. And I'd like to speak to you for just a few moments from this text this evening. The Bible says, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Be not righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this, yea, also from this, withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Here in the middle of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it seems as if the preacher takes a brief interlude and he introduces to us a better way to live. You know, up to this point, much of what the wise man has been speaking about is the vanity of life. He's spoken about the things that people can live for and the different uh, goals that people will have and how that leaves them empty. He had tried those things and came to the conclusion that it was all vanity. He had considered the vanity of all that is under the sun, and he shares with us in these four verses, I believe, something that is worth passing on, an observation that is worth passing on and considering and can be a help to us tonight. Notice, first of all, in verse 15, he, he mentions a consideration that brings perplexity to his mind. And he takes two men and he puts them before our view. Uh, he says, there's one man that is righteous. Uh, obviously, he's speaking about a man who loves the Lord, a man who lives according to the law of God, a man who orders his life in such a way as you would expect that God would be pleased with him. And then there's a wicked man on the other side. And the wicked man would be a man, obviously, who defies the law of God, who does his own thing, who lives selfishly and according to the desires of the flesh. And he's perplexed about these two men. And he's perplexed because he said, I've observed and I see that sometimes there are righteous men or just men who perish, who die. And the implication is that they die prematurely, unexpectedly, as if what happened? They were living their life and it seemed like they were a good man. In other words, this is the kind of guy that you would expect that God would give him long life, that God would extend his life, that God would even let him live an extra long time. And he says, I've observed that some of these men, they perish. And then he sets in contrast to that, this observation, that over here is a wicked man, and this wicked man is doing all the things that you would expect that ought to bring the judgment of God in his life, 
And yet this wicked man ends up living a long life while he's doing all of this wickedness. And so he's wrestling with this truth. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's something that you've wrestled with. I certainly have. There have been times when I've been to the funeral of a man who was a good man, a godly man, a righteous man, a a man who had ordered his life in a way that you would think that's the kind of man that God wants to bless and, and seemingly gone before his time. And you scratch your head and say, Lord, what, what are you doing? Certainly you and I have known people who were in love with the Lord, who were living righteous lives, who were uh, effective in their evangelism, who were uh, involved with their family, who were, you know, all of these things, and yet they died unexpectedly, and it seems like they left a giant hole. And we say, Lord, why does this happen? Why did you take their life? Why did you take them so soon? And then along with that, many of us have watched men who are definitely wicked. There's lots of them in the world today, aren't there? And we see the way that they're living their wicked lives and We would say of these people, they're deserving of God's punishment. They're deserving of God's retribution in their life. And yet it seems like they almost live a charmed life. It's like they get everything they want. And their life is, from the outside at least, it seems to be easy. And they live on and on and on and on. And you think, Lord, why don't you take that person's life. I don't understand why you're allowing them to go on in their sin. Now, I know none of you, you're all probably so merciful that you say, Pastor, I can't believe you would think that way. You know, there have been, I remember years ago when, uh, and uh, he lived a long time, Robert Mugabe was the dictator over Zimbabwe. And he was just a, a wicked, wicked man. And his rule was so heavy and so hard on those people. And he lived into very old age before he died. And he held on to power right till the very end. And I often used to wonder, Lord, why why do you let this wicked man live so long? Maybe you've been perplexed by this like I have. Now, the reason that this perplexes us is because... These two things which we observe seem to fly in the face of the declarations of the scriptures about the fact that sin has a price or a cost that's attached to it, and that price is death, and that God, in contrast to that, rewards those who live according to righteousness and holiness. And we say, Lord, why is it that sometimes it doesn't seem to work that way? Maybe even you feel that many times it doesn't work that way. Now, why is he giving us this consideration in verse 15? I believe because he's reminding us that everything is not really the way that it seems. You and I tend to look at these sorts of situations through the viewpoint, well, because this is the only way we really can look at it, through the viewpoint of what we see under the sun. And we judge a person's life and and the length of their life and these things. And we say, Lord, why did you let that person die? And why do you let this person live? I don't understand why you don't swap places with these two people. Seems like the world would be a whole lot better off if that person was gone and that person stayed a lot longer. And it's just a reminder to us 
tonight that you and I are not God. It's a good thing, isn't it? Good thing that we're not God. And God is the one who makes these decisions. God is the giver of life. God is the one who sets the boundaries of our days. But I do want to promise you tonight that it's not always the way that it seems. And certainly God is a God of righteousness and justice. He was confused. He was perplexed by this. I was thinking about, and you've probably seen the stories too, you know, they're always talking about how to live into long life and many years, and they'll interview somebody, you know, what did you do, and, and maybe they're 100 years old or something. What did you do that gave you such long life? And they'll say, I drank carrot juice every day, and, and I never ate any meat, and I never, never one time let candy pass my lips, and I, I avoided alcohol and tobacco, and never did any, any drugs. You know, I was real careful to exercise, and you think, that makes perfect sense. I mean, that's the kind of person that you would expect to live a long time. Then they'll interview someone else and say, what, what is the secret? And they'll say, I drank a bourbon every day, smoked a couple cigars, uh, you know, basically lived a hard life. All the things that the doctors say, don't do that because you're going to hurt your life. And they're like, well, I lived to be 100, so I guess it didn't hurt me that bad. And you scratch your head and you say, that doesn't make much sense. And this is the same kind of thing. We look at things in life and we say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So he's presenting this to us. But then he goes on in verse 16 and 17, and he builds on this truth. So he says something puzzling in these two verses. And Bible scholars have puzzled over these two verses for a long time, and there's lots of different ideas about what these two verses mean. I'm going I'm to explain to you what I think it means and what I believe he's trying to say. But he says something puzzling in verse 16, "...be not righteous over much." Neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? And the second thing I want you to consider tonight is a caution. A caution that he gives to us that instructs us. So there's a consideration which is puzzling to us, but there's a, there's a caution here which gives us some instruction. And, and it is puzzling why he would say, don't be overmuch righteous. You would think, Shouldn't he be saying, be as righteous as you can? Live as righteously as you possibly can? And then he goes on. Remember, this is a, a set of contrasts. So he, he makes another statement in verse 17. Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? It's almost like he's saying, go ahead and be a little wicked, but not too much. Don't be too righteous and, and, and don't be too wicked. Maybe if you just keep it kind of in the middle you'll be better. Now, what do these two verses mean? Is the wise man really telling us, is the preacher really telling us that we could be too righteous and that a little bit of wickedness is okay? Is that what he's saying? Some people have suggested that perhaps here in these two verses, the preacher has returned to his cynical point of view and he's being a little bit cynical about life and he's just giving some of this under the sun kind of wisdom. But I think there's a better explanation than that. And here's what I think he's saying to us, and I believe it's something that we ought to pay attention to. When he says, be not righteous over much, he's not saying, don't be too holy. 
Don't be too good. Uh, Make sure that you don't do too much righteousness. Rather, I think he's calling attention to a problem which does exist. And it is the problem of self-righteousness. It's the problem of somebody who sees themselves as being very righteous and very holy. We know, biblically speaking, it's not really possible for us to be too righteous. As it is, as much as we do, as much as we try, we fall short of God's standard and we're never as righteous as we ought to be. Even when you and I are attempting to live in a righteous way, we are still struggling with indwelling sin. And the book of Romans talks about this, about the knowledge of indwelling sin. Even when we're trying to do what is right, trying to live in a way that is pleasing to God, a a sanctified believer is aware of the fact that there is a great struggle going on inside of them. No, I think what the wise man is talking about here in verse 16 is the great burden of self-righteousness. This is the person who thinks much of their own goodness and is constantly trying to establish in other people's minds how good and how righteous they are. Hold your place here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and turn over to Romans chapter, chapter 10. We'll see an example of this in Romans chapter 10. And it's in this passage, Romans 10 and verse 3, that the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking about the Hebrew people who have rejected Jesus Christ. And he says something very interesting in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 3. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. If you want an example of someone who is like this man who is righteous over much, you might think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were so self-righteous that they thought themselves more righteous than the Son of God. They thought themselves as superior to everyone who was around them because they had such an elevated sense of their own goodness and their own righteousness. And they were always holding themselves up as the standard. In the process of that, they were also putting heavy burdens on other people and telling other people, if you're going to be as righteous as us, then you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this. And Jesus rebuked those men, and he said that they took the rules or the laws of men And they made them equal with the laws of God. And in doing so, they confused people. You see, the self-righteous man, he's a man who thinks much of himself. And you can go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. He thinks a lot of his own righteousness. He thinks that he has really attained to something. And then he is likely to look at his life and say, God... It doesn't seem like you're treating me fairly. Look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. And why is it that I'm getting such a short end of the stick here? Why is it that I'm not getting the things that other people are? Look at how wicked they are. And why are they getting along so good? And I'm having all of these troubles. And what is it that causes us to think that way? It's self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. So he warns us that we ought to be careful about Self-righteousness. The truth tonight is that self-righteousness is religious wickedness. 
Self-righteousness leads to destruction, and it's a very dangerous trap to fall into. Self-righteousness leads to self-deception and to hypocrisy, along with a harsh and judgmental spirit against others. I believe when he's warning us in verse 16 about being righteous over much, he's not telling us that we ought to try to be less holy, but he's warning us about the trap of self-righteousness. And I want to warn you tonight that this trap of self-righteousness is something that can lure Bible-believing Christians into its, into its place of allurement. And many Bible-believing Christians, if they're not careful to walk in humility with God, can become very much self-righteous, very much focused on their own goodness instead of realizing that anything good that is in us is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice, he warns us about being righteous over much. But then... He also warns us that we should be not overmuch wicked. And this warning in verse 17 is addressed to the man who gives himself wholeheartedly to selfish indulgence. He goes after all the things that he desires. Whatever it is that he wants, whatever it is that he thinks that he ought to have, he gives himself to go after that. And he goes after sin with a gusto that is outlandish to other people who are looking on, especially to the self-righteous man. Self-righteous men look at these overly wicked people and they say, for shame, for shame. And the truth is, it is shameful. They ought not to be living that way. The sad truth in verse 17 is this that usually this path of being overmuch wicked is a hard, hard path. That's why he says in verse 17, he asks the question, why shouldest thou die before thy time? Why is it that you want to take all of this sin into your life and all the consequences that go with it? This man who's over wicked puts himself in harm's way and often his life ends prematurely because of the environment that he's created for himself by his foolish choices. And we've certainly seen many people who've lived like this and who've died like this. And so he warns, be careful of the path of sin. It's a sin or it's a path of destruction. And I I want to warn you tonight, be careful about the choices that you make Be careful about the things that you go after. Be careful of the things that you think are going to make you happy because if you're not careful, you'll bring destruction into your life. And the wise man learns something about the pain that comes along with the pleasures of sin. And so he cared enough to instruct us about that. There's a caution that he gives to us that is instructive. But then notice with me verse 18. He gives us some some counsel. And this counsel is enduring. That means it lasts. It's counsel that is still good in this generation. The book of Ecclesiastes was written thousands of years ago. But this counsel is still good for us today. Notice in verse 18, he says, It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. For he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Now, the reason that I said the man who is righteous over much is self-righteous is because you'll notice in verse 18 
that he introduces a third man to us for our consideration. And this third man is different than the first two men. This third man is marked by something that is very, very important. He is a man who has learned to fear God. And he says, this is the man, this man who fears God, this is the man who is going to come forth of them all. This is the man who's going to endure. This is the man who's going to last. What should we do if we shouldn't live self-righteously and if we shouldn't be indulging in sin and going after the wickedness that this world offers? What is it that we are to do? Well, the counsel that is given here in verse 18 is a precursor to the final conclusion of the book, which we'll find when we get to the very end. But we notice in verse 18 that we should eschew both self-righteousness and outlandish hedonism. We ought not to live in either of those ways. Neither of these paths will satisfy, and neither of these paths brings the blessing of the Lord. But there is a better way to live. And what is that better way? The better way to live is to live in the fear of God. We all ought to aspire to live in the fear of God because in the fear of God is the place of true blessing. Notice there that he draws our attention to this man that feareth God. And he says, this man is worth considering. This man is worth making your model. Now consider four things with me tonight about a man who fears God. What do we know about this man? We're going to look at some verses. You can hold your place here in Ecclesiastes 7 and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 33. Psalm 33, and look with me at verse number 18. The Bible says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Now that word mercy is very important because the idea of fearing God is closely linked with the idea of hoping in God's mercy. And what is mercy? Well, mercy is the expectation that God will be good to us in a way that we don't deserve. Specifically, that God is going to withhold judgment, which we deserve because of our sin, and He's going to do that because of His character of mercy. And specifically, we know, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is the expression of His mercy. So the first thing I want you to consider about a man who fears God is that a man who fears God understands his true condition. He is not self-righteous. A man who fears God does not think of himself as holier than thou or a goody two-shoes or better than anybody else. No, to the contrary, a man who fears God fears God because he has experienced God's mercy and he is in awe of God's mercy. That is, he has recognized what he truly deserves And he is astounded that God has been so good to him. He's not self-righteous. He's rejoicing in the forgiveness and the mercy of God. The fear of the Lord is something that brings us to a place 
where we eschew self-righteousness. We, we don't want to go down that path of self-righteousness because we've understood the mercy of God. A second truth, though, about the man who fears God, and you can turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. I didn't put the, the, uh, the text in my notes, but I can find it. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 7. And the second truth about the man who fears God is found here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, it's interesting here, second of all, that the man who fears God is at the point of beginning to acquire real knowledge and wisdom. He's come to the place now that he's understood that God ought to be reverenced that God ought to be honored and revered, that God ought to be obeyed. By the way, the way that you know that you fear God is, do you obey Him? Do do you honor Him with your life, with the things that you do in your life? You can say all you want that you fear God, but if you're still living according to to your own desires and pursuing after your own plans and all of that sort of thing, you don't fear God at all. In fact, you're setting aside God's commandments and instead you're pursuing after something that you think is better. The man who fears God is at the point where he's beginning to acquire real knowledge and wisdom. This thought of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge and wisdom is repeated several times in the book of Proverbs and it's also found in other books of the Bible reminding us that the fear of the Lord is a very important thing to have in our lives. We ought to be careful to fear God. It's a good way to live. The third truth, and you can turn to Proverbs chapter 8. The third truth about the fear of God that we find is in Proverbs 8 and verse 13. Notice what it says. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Now, the sense in verse 13 is not a hatred of evil that is self-righteous or that views yourself as better than someone else because somehow you've attained to something that they haven't attained. No, the, the, the clear implication in this verse is that you are, because you fear God, you are agreeing with God about the nature of sin. And the third truth that we find is that a man who fears God will run from sin. Not because he's worried about what everyone will think about him, but because he doesn't want to offend God. He hates evil. He hates pride and arrogancy. He doesn't want to involve his life in that. And so he avoids and eschews those things. Hedonism, the the man who's described in verse number 17 of our text... Is not, in his, is not in his view. He doesn't want to live that way because he, he doesn't want to dishonor God. He fears God so much that he wants to lift God up with his life. A man who fears God will run from sin. He doesn't play games with sin. He doesn't toy with sin. He doesn't say, well, I'm not convinced that God is right. I, I think I'd like to, to check this out for myself. No, He doesn't want anything to do with it because he fears God. A fourth truth. And you can turn 
first of all, to Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14. In verses 26 and 27, the Bible says this, "...and the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and His children shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death." Proverbs 19.23 sounds very similar. It says, "...the fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied." He shall not be visited with evil. So the fourth truth about the man who fears God is that this man will experience God's preserving and God's promises coming true in his life. He's going to see God being real to him. He's going to see the working of God being real in his life. He's going to know that the promises of God are a place where he can find refuge and confidence and a place where he can find shelter in the storms of this life. His confidence is in the Lord. This is why we say this fear of the Lord is not some kind of a craven shaking and fearing to come into the presence of God no, it is a reverence and an awe. It's, it's the, it is the, the wonder of someone who has experienced forgiveness from God, who, who understands what it is to be welcome in God's presence and has come to the realization that I don't deserve any of this. And because of that, he knows that God is a strong refuge for him. Now go back to our text for just a moment, and I'm almost done for this evening. But go back to our text in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and consider with me how this jives with his first observation. The observation that caused him to be somewhat perplexed, which was, I've seen just men, and those just men, it seems, had problems in their life. It seems that they perished. It seems that their life was over too soon. And then I've seen some wicked men, and it seems that those wicked men have lived longer than I would have expected. It seems as if they've had relatively few problems. So how do we put all this together? Well, we're reminded tonight that the best way to live is in the fear of God. And there are things that are more important than how many days and years you get on this earth. There are things that are much more significant than how long is the span of your life. You say, what is it that is more important than that? Well, I would propose to you that it is what happens after this life. Because a person could live for a couple hundred years... They, they could live even for a thousand years if they wanted to live that long and, and, and have all of this life and seem to have all of these blessings and all of these things going well for them. But if they don't fear God and they pass into eternity, those thousand years will seem as but a hazy memory in the face of God's eternal judgment upon them. In like manner, the man who lives a righteous life, who fears God, who has the promise of God's preservation, uh, has the promise of heaven and being with God for all of eternity, his life may seem short on this side. 
But when he passes over to the other side, into the place of eternity, into the presence of God, and realizes the full potential of all of God's promise, do you think that that man is going to regret that he has feared God? You see, the thing that causes perplexity in verse 15 is our perspective. Because we tend to judge by the things that we see, by the things that are valuable to us right now, and we forget that there is much. In fact, we could go as far as to say there is most. The most significant, the most important is that which we cannot see because it is beyond the veil of eternity. Tonight, there is a better way to live. And perhaps you're here tonight struggling a little bit with whether it really makes sense to live according to the commands of God. I mean, if I fear God, it seems as if I'm not going to get the things that I want. It seems as if my life isn't going to go the way that I have planned it. It seems as if if I fear God, God is going to take away all the potential for having fun. He's going to keep me from ever enjoying life. And it seems like it would be better for me to at least for a little while just live according to my own way. And many people give in to that temptation, don't they? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands tonight. But I wonder if there aren't some folks in the auditorium who thought exactly that before you came to the Lord. And it's possible that you could say tonight, if I asked you, oh, pastor, that's what I thought, and I wish I hadn't done it. I wish I hadn't gone down that path because I have some regrets today about the decisions that I made back then. I mean, praise the Lord that I got saved and praise the Lord that God changed my direction, but I wish I had never gone that way in the first place. You might be here tonight considering whether it is in fact worth it to fear God. And I want to encourage you with the counsel of the wise man, he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Whatever you do in this life, purpose to fear God. Purpose to get the wisdom of God. Purpose to live according to God's way. Because in the end, you're going to find that God's way is so much better than our way. God really does understand the way that things ought to be and the way that things are. He's designed us with a purpose and He's laid out His plan for our life. And we, if we are wise, will submit ourselves to that plan because it is good to fear God.